This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Hello to Melissa Stewart. Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm going to apologize to you and the viewers. Um, I'm in Tel Aviv or near Tel Aviv, and uh, we're being bombed during these uh, minutes, and uh, I may have to disappear for 10 minutes, but I will be back. And it may be an opportunity for people uh, watching and listening to hear what it's like to be. under attack uh, for being a civilian who lives in Israel and Jewish. Um, How wonderful to have you on the program, Melissa Stewart. Um, You've written so many children's books that um, I can't believe it. It says 200 children's books. Yep, about 200. I actually, this is the 25th anniversary of my very first book, my first book, Life Without Light, and it came out 25 years ago this month. Wow, so we'll talk about that. And today, Today is the launch day. Today um, is the new moon. Today, um, is it really a new moon today? We, we celebrate your new book, which launches today. And it's called Thank You, Moon, Celebrating Nature's Nightlight. That's what right. Wonder, what a wonderful name. So I, have, I forgot already to tell everybody that I'm Mel Rosenberg, and you are watching and listening to the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. I was just too excited. So, um, Melissa, um, you said I could call you Mel. I would be the only person in the world to be calling you Mel. Um, I look for people named Melissa and, and Melvina. And um, So, uh, show us the book. Read us a bit about it. Tell us about it. And then we'll talk about your life and your experience and your advice for authors. Um, and I'm just tickle pink. Or blue. Sure. In your so, case. This, <laughs> so this uh, this book, this wonderful book, is illustrated by Jessica Lannon, who is an illustrator and an author in her own right. She's created many wonderful books all on her own, and I am so lucky to have been paired with her by my editor. Her ed- my editor is Catherine Harrison, and I own I owe her a deep debt because the book idea was actually her idea as well. Um, back in 2020, February 2020, she tweeted me 
and um, talked about uh, there was a conversation going um, going on online about ways that different animals depended on the moon and how much we loved the moon. And she was thinking that this would be a great topic to do a children's book about. There was no children's book about this topic and that maybe it's something that would that I would like to write. She could see it as a, the kind of book that I write. And immediately I was intrigued and I did research. I found out that there were plenty of examples for a book and the rest is history. Wonderful. Would you like to read? It's so lyrical, it's so lovely. The pictures are so gorgeous. This is definitely gonna be a bestseller. Run out everybody and purchase it <laughs> while you can. So I'll read. So this book, um, just so you know, it has, two levels of text it's called layered text so there is a main text up at the top on each spread and then there is the secondary text in a smaller font down here and so this gives supporting details and i just want to give what, one when thing i, was I a, when notice. i was a, when i was a kid melissa i always wanted the icing so i'd rather you read the top layer go ahead okay, go ahead i will do that i will do that Thank you, Moon, for being Earth's constant companion in space. And making life on our planet possible. Thank you for guiding tiny turtles to the sea. and dung beetles to their burrows. Let's show the pictures. Thank you for lighting the land so night monkeys can find their favorite fruits and night jars can gorge on insects. So that's just a little bit to kind of whet your appetite. And uh, there are 10, a total of 10 animals that are included in the book and one plant. And that's wonderful. Um, did you talk about the moon tides or this is not the right book? So the, we didn't really talk about the tides in this book. It's something that we thought about, but we just wanted to kind of keep it very simple, focusing on the role of moonlight in the, the different survival strategies. So there are some animals that's talking about how they find food, how they avoid enemies, how they migrate, how they reproduce. And so it would be just a, a much cleaner presentation. I love it. I love it. So you have like the thank you moon, the lyrical uh, icing. And then uh, below that, you have the, uh, the non-fictional description of, uh, of what you see. And what's interesting about this book is that it's human-centric as it should be. Um, you know, like the animals that find food at night, uh, we might celebrate them unless we particularly- Oops, I lost your sound. Okay, one second. Oh, I got you back, I got you back. Okay, but I need to get myself back. Hold on a second. This will be a second. Okay. Melissa, can you hear me? Yep, I got you back. You're kind of going in and out a little, but I got you now. Mm-hmm, well, I don't know, hold on a second. No. You can't hear me? Oh, now I can. So it's sort of going in, in and out. Yeah. I'm so sorry. And that's okay. And we haven't even been bombed yet. Okay. So, <laughs> so, um, so I, I was I was commenting that um, books are for kids and for their parents. 
and they're human centric. So if you were writing a book uh, to a, that um, the hero, the main character is, is a prey for another animal that um, the moon illuminates, then that wouldn't be such a good thing. Right, right. And there, and there are also some, some counter examples. So for example, toward the middle of the book, there's one example that says, thank you moon for giving lions a chance to feed their families. And you can see that it's a new moon. But then on the next page, we see the sort of the other point of view and gazelles a chance to eat in peace. So when there's a full moon, then the lions can't hunt. And so that's when the gazelle can really have a chance to eat in peace. So there's a little, you know, something for everybody in the animal world. Exactly. And then as you were saying, there is sort of a human-centric focus. There's a human frame. So in the beginning, there is um, talking about making life on our planet possible. In the art, we see a young child, and it talks about how the moon actually regulates the seasons, which affects us as well as many other creatures, all other creatures. And then at the end, we actually come back to the girl and to the family. And it says, but most of all, thank you, Moon, for enchanting us with your ever-changing beauty night after night. And sometimes surprising us in the daytime, too. And so this frame that really one of the reasons I was so interested in writing this book from the very beginning when Catherine suggested it is because I immediately knew what the end of that book would be. And it comes from a personal experience, from a memory that I have with my niece. When uh, she was in kindergarten and her sister was in second grade, I was doing a school visit at their school in Maine. And uh, they wanted to, to drive to school with me rather than take the school bus. And I noticed the, the full moon in the day. And I said, oh, look out the window, there's the moon. And so my older niece was like, oh yeah, that's cool. But then my younger niece who was stuck in the back in the car seat is like, where, where? And she became really frustrated. She said, I've never seen the moon in the day in my whole long life. And she's five years old. So I pulled the car over and we all got out we looked at the moon and I, I just i'll never forget the look on her face like she was it was so full of joy but also awe of the wonder of the natural world and the idea that this moon which she always connected with the night you could see it during the days too and even though even as adults i think we still think that seeing the moon in the day is just a little bit magical or unexpected and so that's why I thought that that would make a great frame for the book, a great way to end the book. It would be a very satisfying, like a, a tiny little twist. And it is. It's a gorgeous book. Uh, Thank and you. maybe um, while we're talking, of course, because I'm old, uh, you remind you, your niece reminded me of the walrus and the carpenter. Lewis Carroll's uh, wonderful poem where the moon is upset because the sun uh, um, had no business to be out after the day was done. It was very unkind yeah. of her, she said, to come and spoil the fun or something like that. I, I'm a big Lewis Carroll fan. Um, Melissa, tell us about now about your life. Start at the beginning. You were born, you were a child. Sure. I was. So when I was born, really what, what influenced my path to becoming a writer, I think, is how I was raised and where I grew up. So my parents lived in um, a rural area in Western Massachusetts in the United States. 
And we had 10 acres of land um, across the street and also behind us. Some of it we owned, some of it was part of a national forest. And my brother and I just ran around and, you know, we played in the woods and we made forts and we made bikes jumps and we dammed ponds and we caught turtles and frogs. And I think that really is a deep part of who both of us are. He's actually an environmental consultant. So I think it really kind of influenced him as well. Um, but I think, and so I went to to college and I majored in biology, which is- Oh, oh you're, ru you're running way too fast here. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Yeah, we have Did to go I, back to I left some stuff out? Yeah, like 20 years. So- um, <laughs> That's so true. I, I, have, I have a theory and my theory says, that a children's book writers gravitate to the age of their inner child. So are you somewhere five or six years old? Hmm. I, you know, I would say really my, my favorite, when I'm doing school visits, my favorite grade is third grade. So I think I might be, I think you're eight when you're in third grade typically. So I think maybe I have an inner third grader in me. Um, and, you know, even though picture books are often for younger children, a lot of science picture books kind of tend to skew a little higher. They would totally be appropriate for grades two, three, four, um, maybe even a little more. I think the, the layered text in a book like this helps to make it appropriate for a broader audience. You can, the older you are, you can sort of um, really delve into that, that smaller secondary text. I would I would venture that a good picture book works at practically any age. Yeah, and adults it, love it too. Yeah, and it's great. Um, I, I love I love uh, presenting the picture book to five and six year olds and their parents. And mm -hmm. uh, second and third grade are wonderful. And um, I, I I completely uh, understand where you're going on this because they 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 can talk. At a much higher level and express themselves. Um, so that's wonderful. So you were eight years old and you still are eight years old and you grew up a little bit since then. And um, in high school, you were interested in? I was interested in science. So I, I was actually, I sort of skipped an important story, which I should go back. And interestingly, it happened when I was eight, which I never really kind of connected to the whole loving third graders. But um, so when I was eight and my, so my brother would have been about six. Um, my father would always take us for hikes in the woods. And one day we went to an area that neither one of us had been to before. And my father said, do you, any, do you notice anything unusual about this area of the woods? And my brother and I sort of looked at each other. We weren't sure. But then I noticed that all the trees seemed kind of small. And my father said, good observation. There was a fire here about 25 years ago and all the trees burned down and the the, you know, some of the animals died, others probably were able to escape. And for me, that was just really a magical moment. People call it an aha moment because I realized two really critical things. Number one, the natural world is so powerful that it can regenerate itself, but also you can read the history of an area just by looking around. And I think that is the moment that I was hooked on science and hooked on nature. And that's what really led, I mean, both my parents were scientists. So I think that was all around me in my entire life, but it's the reason that I loved science all through school. And I always 
thought I would be a scientist when I took science classes when I was in high school. I majored in biology when I was in college. Well, one thing, were and you, it wasn't your, really. Your oh, were, you, were your parents biologists? Uh, my father was a mechanical engineer, and my mother was a laboratory technologist. Um, so, but they both had a broad love of science, and and we had scientific discussions around the the dinner table a lot. You know, they would they would notice they had read something interesting in the newspaper and they would tell us about it and we would discuss it. Um, so we were always, you know, thinking, talking about science and discoveries, but also the idea of thinking in a scientific, logical, objective kind of analytical way, I think is sort mm -hmm. of infused in who, who both my brother and I are. Yeah. Wonderful. So you went on to study uh, biology Yep, at, I studied biology at, at Union College. At, yeah, at Union College, which is in Schenectady, New York, it's near Albany. And I, uh, in my, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do for a job. I at at a certain point, I realized that if I was going to be a professional scientist, I was going to have to do a whole lot more schooling. And I wasn't really sure that I wanted to take all that on. Um, especially at the time I was doing some research in genetics. I was um, cloning Drosophila fruit flies. And it it was such tedious work that I just really I didn't think it was for me. And there were no examples there of wildlife biologists. I think if there had been a wildlife biologist in my college experience, I may have graduate gravitated that way instead. Um, but because it was so such a medical-based um, college, I, I sort of just thought, no, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a PhD scientist that's studying Drosophila. Um, and so I, I did all these different internships under the guidance of a professor named Professor Williams. And so I went into four different kinds of work experiences, and I didn't really think any of them were right for me. But in order to get a grade for that class, I had to write about all these experiences. And so during this whole period, Professor Williams came to me with an article in Discover Magazine, which is a popular science magazine in the U.S., and um, she said, you could have written this article. Maybe this is the job for you. And so that was another aha moment, right? Thank goodness. Thank goodness that she saw a talent in me and she let me know because I had no idea. Who knows what I would be right now if she hadn't brought that to my attention. So I'm, I have been truly grateful to her for many years. And also a lot of children's authors, they don't really come to their careers until, you know, they have children of their own and they're a little bit older. I, um, I went and immediately did a, a program in science journalism at New York University. And I started working as an editor and, and um, over time, that turned in, I started writing books for the publisher that I was working for. And then I eventually started, um, I left that job because I wanted to be close to my nieces and nephews and well, started writing full time. Hold. Okay. <laughs> you segued to your first book and it's 25 years. Show us your first book. Let's celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. The book is out of print and it's a good thing because all the information is totally out of date. Um, but it was exciting. I had written um, many, many magazine articles um, before I wrote my first book, but it, it took me actually five years 
to convince the publisher that I was working for to let me write a book um, because there, there was a policy that if you were an editor there, you could not write for it. But I, I sort of wore him down over time. And then several of my colleagues ended up writing books as well. And I, I think it was great because since we were editors there, we really understood how the books that they created work. And um, we could often, we, you know, there often wasn't as much editing necessary for those books because we had a really strong sense of what that book had to be from the get-go. Um, so I ended it, it, up writing about 10 books for them. It, which uh, which publisher? Uh, so that book, that publisher was called Franklin Watson Children's Press. At the time, they were owned by um, Hachette Grolier, which is an imprint of Hachette. It was then sold to Scholastic. Um, so you, publishers often, you know, there's a lot of shuffling around. Um, and then sadly, those imprints, I think, are shut down now. I don't think that they have survived all these 25 years. Okay. Um, Melissa, can you but, show us this uh, this book? It, it looks uh, beautiful. Yeah, so this is this is the book, Life Without Light. This is my first book. And it's about creatures that live deep under the ocean, deep inside caves. So I wrote this book right around the time that um, hydrothermal vents had been discovered and all the research was coming out. I had written many, many magazine <laughs> articles about them, which is what led me to decide that I could write an entire book about them. Uh, so that I was the first book. I wanted to ask you. So um, I've, ha I've had I've um, had editors uh, on the program, and I, and I I work with Harold uh, Underdown, and and most editors do not. They're wonderful helping you with your books. But they don't dare to write their own. Oh, yeah. I think some do and some don't. I think, you know, I think editing is a is a whole different skill set than writing. And I think some people have both interests and both talents. And maybe some people are are better at editing and some people are better at writing. Um, I, you know, I think I think that probably writing was always the place I should have been, even though I enjoyed editing. I think when I told some of my writers that I was going to become a full-time editor, they said, yeah, we think that's a good, a good choice, a good way for you to go forward. So, so when, when you were editing, um, uh, then um, did sometimes did you think that you had an important idea to share with the writer that would have been significant? Um, because um, I, I, um, I should say that I didn't take writing seriously until I had grandchildren. Um, so you talk about coming late to this. Uh, and I just had a book come out. And, and, and I worked with several editors. And what I loved about them was they didn't tell me what to do. They just told me what was missing. But when I teach beginners, I always want to tell them, because I'm a writer, I want to say, oh, you know, this should not be about a squirrel. It should be about a giraffe. So how, how did, as, a, as an editor who became a writer, were you like um, bubbling with ideas? How did it work? I, you know, I probably was bubbling with ideas. I think in the kind of publisher that I worked for, I think, you know, when you write for magazines, uh, they don't always ask you everything. They, you know, sometimes they just do what needs to get done. Um, and there's a little bit more hands-on from editors of magazines and that publisher that I worked for was a little bit more that way where versus 
um, kind of the, that was a school and library publisher. I think the trade publishers are more kind of hands-off. Um, so I think whenever you work with an editor as a writer, it's important to sort of understand, you know, how that publishing company works because they're not all the same. Okay, so you had your opportunity. You started writing books. You wrote 10 books for this publisher you worked for. Yep. And 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 I'm guessing I'm guessing you didn't have an agent because you were you wrote no well you know back in those days so this was the you know 1990s very early 2000s and there really there really weren't children's book agents back in those days it really it wasn't until after the Harry Potter phenomenon really caught on and people started to say oh there could be big money that's when. Um, and then in, especially in 2008, when there were a lot of layoffs in children's publishing, a lot of those laid off editors became agents. And so I think that a phenomenon of a lot of editors having agents is really something that has only happened in the last 10 to 15 years. And for many years after agents exist, they would not take nonfiction authors because they thought that there just wasn't enough money in that arena. Hold on, um, hold, on hold on, hold on, hold on. We're yep. not there yet. We're going to talk okay. about that. Don't worry. We're going to okay. talk about that. So you published, uh, this, this program is mostly about you, Melissa. Um, so you published 10 books. And then what happened? What about the other 190 that followed? Yeah, so I published about 10 books. And then I basically decided that I wanted to leave the editing job that I had. Um, and the main reason is that I want, I wanted to be a doting aunt. My brother had just had his first child and I knew that he and his wife were planning to have several children. And I just, I wanted to live much closer to them. Uh, my parents were also starting to get a little bit older. And so I strategically placed myself right in between where my parents lived and where my, my uh, brother and sister-in-law lived so that I could be a bigger part of all of their lives. But I also, at the same time, I really wanted to pursue this writing thing full time. It was a very scary leap um, because I, I didn't know what was gonna happen and I wasn't gonna have health insurance and I wasn't gonna have a paycheck, a regular paycheck, um, but I, I made it work. And I ended up getting married about four years later and so then I had some stability again because my husband has health insurance. He has a regular paycheck. Um, but that those first four years were kind of pretty nerve wracking. Um, but but I made it and um, I continued. I was very lucky to be able to continue publishing. And um, I haven't had books come out every single year since then, but most years I've had I've had one or two books, and there was one year I actually had 22 books. Um, I can't remember what year that was. It was maybe like 2017 or something like that. Um, but now, and that was during that period of time, I, like I said before, I was writing primarily for the educational market or the school and library market. And over time, I gradually worked my way over into the trade market, which is primarily where I'm working right now. And um, did you have an agent uh, um, represent you, even though you write nonfiction primarily? I did have an agent um, for about five years. Uh, so I think probably I, I started working with her in around 2016. Um, but I'm I'm back to working on my own. I, I think that 
because I worked as an editor for many years, I know a little bit about negotiating contracts. And I also have a fair number of contacts in, um, in the publishing world. And so I just decided that going it on my own was probably better for me right now. I mean, who knows? Who knows what will happen in the future? But for me, I think this is a good place for me to be right now. Wonderful. How many books are you working on now, Melissa? Um, well, the book, they're in lots of different stages of production. So some of them have been acquired and they're sort of maybe waiting for an illustrator. Some of them are being illustrated. Some of them are being designed. So I'm pretty hands off during all of that period, but they're still sort of in my mind. I have really? one you're, book. Your you're, you're hands off? Like in picking the well, illustrator? Yeah, because, they're, because other people are doing their job. So, wow. you know. Wow. Wow. So one sec, one sec. This is important. So um, let's go to your brand new book, which launched today, which launches today. Mm -hmm. The new moon is out. Um, and um, I should say that Jewish people, you know, we, we, we always know where the moon is because it's part of our religion. Um, so uh, very central to, to our lives. All the holidays, they're either in the full moon, the new moon. Um, we just had Rosh Hashanah, which is the uh, new yes. moon. Um, so um, this uh, wonderful book uh, came out, and you want to tell me that you didn't interact with the illustrator, you didn't pick the illustrator. Um, I, I know that newbies don't, but you've written 200 books. Why didn't you say, oh, I want Patricia to illustrate this book? Well, honestly, because my my editor suggested Jessica, and I, I knew her work from other books, and I, I could just... She's so talented and I love her art so much that I thought it would be a wonderful experience to work with her. There are times when I'm in, you know, when I kind of suggest illustrators, but often it's not that I want that exact person or, you know, maybe I do want that exact person, but it helps the publisher to understand the style of art that I have in mind. Do I want it to be like more painterly? Do I want it to be a little more humorous? Do I want it to be watercolors? Do I want it to be cut paper? Um, so there, usually there's some kind of dialogue, but the publisher makes the ultimate decision on that. But, and, but you're also an editor. So I'm, I'm True. interested in the- in, well, But in that uh, relationship, I'm not. In that relationship, my, my, my hat, I have my author's hat on um, for something like that. But, but Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. But and are you are you are you able to step back and and let because I think that part of this beautiful book and picture books that I consider beautiful are 
in those where the author throws the ball up in the air and the illustrator has lots of space to play with it as here. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have different levels of involvement depending on who the illustrator is. I think, um, you know, Jess has done many other science themed books and she has a love of the natural world. And so her her individual research was just she hit the book. She hit the ball out of the park, as they say. And there's some illustrators that maybe don't have that kind of background. And so I'm maybe I'm feeding them more photo reference or um, giving more suggestions. I do have an opportunity to look at the sketches. And if I see some scientific errors, I can let them know. Um, that wasn't really an issue in this book because as I said, her her research was outstanding and her knowledge, she has a deep knowledge of science and nature to begin with. So every book is a little bit different, but as you said, it's very important to give the illustrator space to make it their own book too. If I, you know, if I'm micromanaging, we're not going to end up with the best possible book. How, how can you not micromanage? You're an editor. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, so I have to put that put that aside. Okay. So, um, so this is wonderful. Uh, before we talk about fiction and nonfiction, um, which I'm very excited about discussing with you. Um, so I wanted to ask you out of the, and nobody's listening, Melissa, out of the 200 <laughs> books, has there ever been a time when you were dissatisfied with the way the artwork came out? Um, not, not really, because I mean, like I said, I do, if there's a, you know, scientific accuracy, accuracy is an issue. They, they are always willing to listen. And, you know, different editor, different illustrators do have different styles, but but I like that. I like that not all my books look exactly the same and that they, you know, they might appeal to different audiences because of that. So I think it's just, I think it's, it's just part of the process. I think if I wanted to dictate every single aspect of the book, then I should self-publish. You know, it's, I think it's writing a book, creating a book is a collaborative process. And you need to respect, you need to sort of stay in your own lane and respect that other people are, you know, are excelled at what they're doing. And that's why the publisher has brought them in. And, and we didn't even talk about the the text and the editors that want the changes that you don't agree with. Yeah, you know, I haven't really run into that a whole lot. I think because it's nonfiction and because... Um, you know, for many of the books that I write, there's a lot of different layers. There might be multiple different kinds of illustrations. There might be um, formatting issues and things. So it's very important for the editor to really have a sense of what I call the whole package, to have a vision for that. And usually if they don't, they will reject it. And if they're not happy with the way that the text is working, they will reject it. So by the time that they accept it, I have probably revised that text so much that they're pretty happy with it. I mean, certainly, you know, there's a copy editor and there's a proofreader, um, but my books overall tend to not have tons of, of, it's very different from a fiction book where you might get a revision letter that could be many pages long. I think they would, they, they, 
could possibly acquire a fiction book much earlier in the process when there's still a lot of work to be done. I think with nonfiction books, or at least with my nonfiction books, they sort of, all the elements really need to be almost perfect, almost in place, or they're just going to reject it because they don't have that vision for it. Okay, and so now uh, we come to the uh, to the flag. You are the flag bearer in North America of more nonfiction books, um, and uh, I'd like to hear your uh, your viewpoint. Yeah, well, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would say I'm the the flag bearer. I would, you know, I would say there there are other people that are definitely very keen on nonfiction advocacy, and I think. Um, Advocacy, really the, that was the word. Yeah. <laughs> in the in the last year, especially NCTE, National Council for Teachers of English, has come out with a nonfiction position statement that had uh 10, 10 contributors. I was one of them, but but um you know, many other people who contributed to it, where we sort of pulled together all the research. And that's something that I have been keen on doing since maybe 2017. People always used to assume that children prefer fiction. Um, and so I wanted to try to do a study to show that that was perhaps not true. Because in my experience, I just, I know many adults that love nonfiction and I kept meeting kids that love nonfiction. And I just, I doubted this kind of sensibility that was pervading our society. And when I went to sort of try to do some background research, I found that these studies always already exist, but there was sort of one over here, one over here, there was no body. And so I brought them all together. And I think if, if I've done anything, I think that starting to pull everything together is maybe my greatest contribution. Because what happened is when people saw what I was doing, they started feeding me material. So they knew about one study and this, so they they sent me a copy of it. And so I, I started to realize that there was more and more. And I think that also led people to even do more and to look at it from different aspects and to become interested in this idea this that it's a possible fallacy that we have been operating under for all these years. And I so I think we're now getting to the point where most school librarians and um, you know some teachers and some parents are starting to see that many kids really do prefer nonfiction, and I I think it's I think it's it's starting to snowball. I think we still have a long way to go, but I think it's it's so critical because not only do they enjoy reading it in for their own pleasure it's the gateway to literacy for some children. And so we have these students or these, you know, even as even grownups who are not really readers because they don't, they don't see themselves as readers because nonfiction was not just defined as real reading, real reading when they were kids. And so I think that that's sort of the shift that needs to happen and just as many people are now saying, let kids read graphic novels, any reading is real reading. It's the same for nonfiction. Any reading is real reading. If they want to read nonfiction, read nonfiction. If they want to read graphic novels, that's great. If you know, whatever it is, just get them reading um, because then they have a better chance so, of becoming so Melissa, lifelong readers. Okay, so, so the argument is that fiction is wonderful mm -hmm. and nonfiction is wonderful. And um, we, but 
we want to have more nonfiction. But it's not denigrating fiction for young children. Right, right. And so I think if you look at right now, if you look at the statistics in the adult publishing world, 63% of sales are nonfiction. But in the children's publishing world, 24% of book sales are nonfiction. So if you have all these adults that love nonfiction, why wouldn't there be all these children that also love nonfiction? And they it's a matter of access, that adults have more access to books because they can go out and buy them. But children don't do that. They, they only have access to the books that adults around them hand them. And so if those adults recognize that these kids may be a nonfiction reader, they will hand them the kind of book that they can fall in love with. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna now tell you what bothers me, and, and you're going to fix and correct this. Um, I'm I don't like dichotomies, um, and um, I'm anti dichotomy. Uh, I don't think that there has to be such a thing as fiction and nonfiction because there's a whole spectrum of books that are stories, but, but they're based on nonfiction. And uh, even science fiction is based on nonfiction. Um, and really, the way that we perceive the world is nonfiction. The way that we interpret it might be fiction. So please help me with this. Um, you know, I, I write stories that, because I'm a scientist, but I also like a um, Lewis Carroll, that have a combination and then I don't know whether to call them fiction or nonfiction or informational fiction or semi-informational fiction. I've been waiting five years to ask you this question. <laughs> That's a long time to wait. I, I have two answers. And so the first answer is that in many parts of Europe, they actually don't distinguish between fiction and nonfiction at all. And so it's a very American construct to kind of try to have these two categories that everything fits snugly into. And I agree with you that, you know, not everything fits snugly into one category or another. There, and there, you mentioned the term informational fiction. There is a lot of informational fiction where there is a book that has um, research documentable information in it, but perhaps it has a made up narrator. So for example, a there are uh, there's a whole series of books about the space, um, but there is a narrator that is that planet or like the sun is the narrator and it's telling you facts about itself. Um, so, you know, there are books like that that sort of are blurring those lines. But I do think that there are students that connect very strongly with nonfiction and that even informational fiction is really not what they want. And you really need to give students what they want. I think one issue with informational fiction is that when we, when children are taught to read fiction, they are taught to look for the main character, pay attention to what's happening with the main character, because that's what they're going to be tested on. That's what they need to know. And so they trans, they kind of uh, bring that with them when they read informational fiction. And so research is starting to show that the kids will remember that there's a funny son narrator, but they can't tell you any of the facts that were in the book. So, you know, that's something to think about. Is that book a success? 
if they're not getting the information. It depends on what the purpose of that book is. If the purpose is for kids to have a fun experience, then it, it appears that that happened. If the if the purpose is for them to glean some basic information about the sun, then that book is a failure because they haven't done that. So I, I think you sort of have to define what is the purpose for reading that book mm -hmm. and what do you hope students will get out of it. Um, okay. But you also, on the other hand, you sort of have to look at the fact that there are some kids that do not connect with character. They don't care about this, you know, what's happening to this character. They want to, they read to learn and they want the facts. They want them to be clear and accessible. And they, they just respond to something different than a person who loves fiction. And this is very difficult for a fiction lover to understand. It seems counterintuitive because their whole lives they've been surrounded um, by other people who think the way that they do. And so therefore they assume that all people think that way, but in fact, they don't. That in my opinion, there's a continuum of thinking. And there are some people that really connect, analytical thinkers that really connect to the facts and the ideas and the information, and they want it clear and simple. Um, and then there are people that really connect strongly to stories, but then there's a whole continuum and there's many, many people, probably most people that are somewhere in the middle. And we really, we need books for all of those people. Well, exactly. Most people are somewhere along this spectrum. And, you know, let's have a look, another look at your gorgeous book that just came out today. Okay, I want you to read me because the icing, this beautiful lyrical text, read me another page and show sure. us a beautiful picture. And then I'm so going to make- let's see, we've seen the monkeys. We'll say, I read this, let's get, Oh, let's get to, this is actually my favorite illustration in the book, so let's read this page. Thank you, Moon, for warning zooplankton to dive deep. So this is an image of under the ocean of the zooplankton, and they're swimming down. I love the perspective in this piece, and the colors are so beautiful. And kangaroo rats to stay hidden. So here's a more familiar example. Mm-hmm more uh, familiar environment. And okay. I'll read you a little more. Sure. Thank you for sending a signal that triggers corals to spawn. So here's another under the ocean scene and joint pines to release their pollen. So here's the plants example. Mm -hmm. Just really beautiful art all throughout this book. It, it's gorgeous. And, 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 and the text, the icing is, is lyrically written and it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, and so now I, I just, you gave me an idea, Melissa. And, and that is that even in a book like yours, which is nonfiction, the, the illustrator has added a, 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 a fictional reflection of nature because otherwise uh, we could have taken photographs and the book and some books do have photographs, but there is this element of storytelling that is fictional because your illustrator has dreamed it up. So it, it, it's a reflection of the world. And so you have the both of them coming together. You have the nonfiction, the text, the subtext, and rather than photographs, you have the interpretive dream. 
Yeah, I wouldn't call it a fictional reflection of the world. I mean, everything that's in that illustration is accurate. All the plants, all the mm -hmm. animals, I, I, the I'm, habitat. I'm, 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 I'm going to rephrase. It's a human rendition of what could otherwise be a photograph. You know, if you right. want to have a real nonfiction book, then why have an illustrator? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is that not everything can be shown in photographs. For example, it's very difficult to take photographs at night, or it's difficult to take photographs inside a cave, or it's difficult, you know, animals do all kinds of things. You can't control their behavior. So if you want to show a specific behavior, it can be very difficult to capture that that photo. It means some person has to be in the right place at the right time. Um, and that's very tricky. So this is so, but this is a a a, a an artist's perfect rendition. Um, but it, it doesn't emulate a photograph. It emulates artwork. And um, this is something that's kind of a little bit of a revelation to me. You see, I was a scientist once. I wrote 120 papers. Um, I, we never had an illustrator come in. Oh my goodness, we did. Well, you probably had diagrams. You, yeah, right? but these you were no. We had, had graphs. Some, we yeah. had graphs and tables. But I, I do have one one article in Scientific American, which is which has illustrations. My goodness, I never thought about that. But Scientific American is is is, in, is a journal for the public. Right. So the, the the public, your public, needs beyond the photographs. It needs this 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 human touch of the illustrator. And right. and that and that is a revelation for me. Thank you so much. And my last question, because um, I I try to write nonfiction for kids, and I fail because I was a scientist for thirty years, and I, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, but um, the, you, you talked about your first book, the science being outdated after twenty five years. Um, Lewis Carroll will will never be outdated. Alice in Wonderland will never be outdated, even though um, many of the elements don't exist anymore in our society but the story is 200 years old almost 170 years old and it will remain in our hearts I, I i had a book as a young child on mars and i think it helped persuade me to become a scientist but i can i can recite ludwig bellman's madeline and i can't remember what was in the book about mars well, just because you don't remember doesn't mean it didn't influence you. No, I, I, and, it, it influenced me. I, yeah. I'm thinking that that's why I became a scientist is because, wow, Mars, how do they know it's red? It's got canals. My goodness. Probably nothing in that book. <laughs> it's probably today pure fiction, if I could find it from the 1950s. Um, probably nothing in that book is correct. Um, wow. So, um this has been really, really interesting for me. Uh, before we leave, we've been going 47 minutes, even more, and I've enjoyed every second of it. Um, do you have any advice you'd like to share with aspiring writers? Uh, you've written 200 books. Um, people like me have written one, and there's people who haven't published it all yet who are listening and waiting for advice that's going to help them breakthrough. I do. I do will do that. But I want to tell you about a study that I think you might be interested first. This, this was a study that was done by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. 
uh, I'm going to say 15-ish years ago, they found that 86% of scientists who reported loving their jobs could trace their interest in science back to a person they knew or an experience mm. that they had when they were eight years old. And so I think maybe, you know, maybe that's true for you with that Mars book. It's definitely true for me. Um, but I think it just means that, you know, educators and parents have this enormous responsibility to, you know, try to expose their kids to as much as possible because this, this is the, you know, this is, this helps to determine what they will become with their future. And if we want, um, you know, we want to have strong science across the world, we really need to help kids get engaged in science and stay engaged in science, which so often is not happening, unfortunately. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the different side as somebody who's being bombed right now as we speak. Okay. Uh, the, the bombs are created by technology. True. And our bombs that interact with their bombs, and that's a very good thing, otherwise they wouldn't be here, are created by technology. <clears throat> but what the world needs now is more human kindness and less yeah. brutality and savageness. Um, so, Melissa, a, a piece of advice for authors. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, just keep on working. I just last week had a book um, accepted that I had been working on for 15 years. And, you know, people think that's astounding. They Well, number one, they think that's astounding, period. But they also think, well, you've written 200 books. How, why don't you just get something acquired like that all the time? And the answer is every book is a journey and it takes as long as it takes. And you just have to keep working. And, you know, some books you may put aside, but the books that really are deep in your heart that you're not going to give up on, just just keep writing them and just keep trying, follow the market, um, try to see what is happening in, in books, how what what people are doing now that's different than maybe they were doing five or 10 years ago. Where where's the place for your book in this broad market of children's literature? Um, it's you know, it's really immersing yourself in books. Um, is so critical. Linda Sue Park says, read a hundred books in the genre that you want to write. And I think that's amazing advice, wonderful advice that you really need to know what, what it, what's out there and where you can fit into the world of children's literature. Wonderful. So Melissa Stewart, this has been remarkable. And um, we've gone 50 minutes. Uh, I have not been bombed. And um, yeah. <laughs> Yay for that. And the show us again your wonderful book. So um, I'm Mel Rosenberg, the host of the Children's Literature Channel, the New Books Network. And I'm here with the prolific and wonderful author. No, hold the book up. Melissa Stewart. Oh, keep holding. Who, okay. Yes. Who is celebrating today her wonderful new nonfiction book with beautiful pictures. Thank you, Moon, celebrating nature's nightlight. Gorgeous, gorgeous text, gorgeous pictures. Melissa, it's been wonderful having you. I love this interaction. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.